Richard, Bruce, what's going on, man? On this fine <laughs> Saturday morning, very unusual day for us. Saturday, what, what, what in the world's going on in Houston again, man? You know, it just seems to be a bastion for water sitting on top of us and depositing all of their shit. Holy cow, man! It rained for five days straight, six days maybe. But uh, I was without internet. I was without power. Um, kind of the drizzling shits. I'm not going to bury the uh, the provider who's supposed to provide this stuff because uh, the guy did actually come out. But the important thing is, is we've got internet right now. I've got power. Uh, let's do this, son of a bitch, man. It's it's a wonderful thing and had kind of have feel like I haven't talked to you in forever. Wait, hang on. You you don't want to bury Xfinity and Comcast? Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, exactly. Those motherfuckers, had they got their shit together, we would have been just fine to release on time, but no. And, uh, of course, if they're advertising next week, we'll go back and delete this, but they're not this week, <laughs> so fuck them. Uh, no, seriously, we are uh, glad you guys are with us, and we hope you're digging what we're doing. And we should mention, because we haven't talked about it in quite a while, the man over at BrucePritchard.com, we've got new shirts up, including uh, our brand new promo code Wrestle shirt. I'm a big fan of this. We joked about it a few weeks ago that at this point we've had so many damn sponsors on the show, and we try to always make sure the promo code is Wrestle. But even if you see something advertised on TV and you don't think you've ever heard it here on the show, just in case, you should just try to use that promo code Wrestle. Might save yourself some money. Uh, so check it out right now, BrucePritchard.com. And you'll be able to uh, snatch up a t-shirt there. Uh, one of our first new t-shirts in a long time, but something that's not new here on the show is us praising 1997. One of my absolute favorite years in the company. And today we're going to cover one of the most important raws, maybe the most important raw up until this point. It's September 22nd, 1997. The first time raw was inside Madison square garden, the home away from home for the WWE. Uh, it drew 14,615 fans. Uh, the paying audience was 10,672 fans, really big gate for a raw 258 grand, uh, nearly $98,000 in merchandise. This is the largest live gate for any raw or nitro in history. Uh, this is a very, very big deal to have it at Madison square garden, but behind the scenes, Jr. has mentioned that, you know, a lot of times, even when you guys would sell out the garden with a sellout. You would lose money because it was so expensive to run the garden. Is it bittersweet to have your biggest house like this, but no, well, there's still probably less profit than normal. Well, yeah, it is expensive to run New York city is, well, you and I have found out from time to time because it's, well, it's New York city. 
man, dealing with the unions and dealing with all of the extra expense from trying to get permits to park your, your trucks and things on the street, it is extremely expensive to run the city. Well, and not just the city, but Madison square garden. I mean, this is such a, a big important arena, not just to the WWF, but to the McMahon family. How important was it to Vince in a, in a relatively, uh, challenging time in the company to run Madison square garden? I mean, cause this is, this isn't just his building. This was his dad's building before him. Right. And his, and his grandfather's building before that. So I, I remember in, in 1987, when I started WWE, my first visit to the garden, I had just moved to Connecticut. My clothes and everything were still in boxes. I, I had had the truck deliver all my stuff that day. It was a Saturday. Joel Watts and I went to the garden. So I just threw on what clothes I had and my ties were at the bottom of a box and we took off to the garden. I didn't put a tie on. That's the moral of the story. And I'll never forget the, the feeling I got the first time that I walked into Madison square garden. It it is the most famous arena in the world. And, And as a child reading the wrestling magazines, everything came from the garden. So it was a dream to, wrestle in Madison square garden, actually main event at some point in Madison square garden. So to walk into the garden was a huge thrill and, and one of those goosebump moments in my life. But I'll never forget, uh, Vince welcoming me to the garden and explaining that his, his pop always used to say his dad, you know, he goes, he would always say, you know, the garden is the garden. And, uh, Where's your tie, pal? I said, Oh, well, I we moved in today. I moved in today and and I just wanted to get here, so everything was packed and I uh just didn't unpack them. And he said, Next time you have a problem finding a tie, let me know. I'll get you one. We wear ties around here, pal. So I never uh Never let that mistake happen again. Even when we had our relaxed dress code in the garden for the longest time, I would wear a tie because it was the garden. It was such an important building. And, uh, I'm glad that raw finally happened there and you guys are going to pull out all the big guns. Of course, we know this is going to be where stone cold. Steve Austin is going to deliver a stunner to Vince McMahon and cactus. Jack is going to make his WWF debut and. Uh, before we talk about what happened on screen, we should probably talk about the, uh, behind the scenes, uh, Meltzer would report the WWF has threatened new Japan with a lawsuit over the company, having the old WWF light heavyweight title as a part of the J crown. Since WWF is introducing a new light heavyweight title shortly, this is, uh, probably something that wasn't on your radar before. Cause who cares? We're not doing anything with it. But when you realize, well, shit. That old belt we haven't ever acknowledged. They're still using over there. We got to get that motherfucker back. What do you remember about that? Well, the, the championship in question was the WWWF junior heavyweight championship. I believe that was, it was a, I think it was a Japanese title And here. You know, the history of it is, is long and convoluted, but Vince's father in cooperation with uh, Mr. Shima, 
from Japan, who was the figurehead president of New Japan Pro Wrestling, but but very very important man over there. They they had a partnership, and they traded talent back and forth. It was a big deal for the Japanese talent to come and appear in Madison Square Garden. So they created a championship, uh, the, this junior heavyweight championship, and Tatsumi Fujinami was the champion for a number of years, and my brother Tom actually worked with Fujinami in California, in Los Angeles, in, God, early 80s at some point, where it was closed-circuited back to Japan, so it was a, a pretty big deal for him. But anyway, long story short, I think that once Vince started not using guys from New Japan anymore, they forgot about that championship. And at some point in the in the thing, I don't know if that's the belt that Chavo Guerrero uh, had taken. Chavo was the junior heavyweight champion in Japan for a while. Chavo took the belt and came to Texas with it and you know declared himself you know world junior heavyweight champion. So it, it had a storied history. And they were once WWE was this big, big belt or big company. They started to use our, our brand to promote their shows. And it was more of a, Hey, please don't promote that. You have the WWF junior heavyweight or light heavyweight champion. And we'd like, we'd like our property back. It was, uh, part of the company. And that's really what it was. It was we were creating our own championship, and they were using our name without our permission. Well, somebody who wants uh, a new name is uh, PJ Walker. Paul Heyman, according to Meltzer's report, has asked the company to release PJ Walker from his contract. Of course, PJ Walker we knew in WWF days as Aldo Montoya. He's going to wind up. Uh, debuting as just incredible for ECW and obviously that's the character that would resonate most with fans and he would still continue to use to this day. Uh, he's ultimately turned down. What did you guys see in PJ Walker where you weren't quite ready to let go of old Aldo here in September of 97? Well, I just think that it was a situation where we had used all the, we, we had high hopes for Aldo when Aldo came in. And I will never forget, and I'm pretty sure I've shared the story before, from when P.J. Polacco came in, P.J. Walker, and Jerry Lawler saw him in Massachusetts somewhere and brought him to us. Says, oh, my God, this guy looks just like Jerry Seinfeld. There's got to be something to do with him. Make him a comedian and, and do something with him. And Pete was a really good hand. He was a good worker, but just not a lot of personality. So we were trying to do something with him, trying to figure something out with him. When Vince learned that he was Portuguese, he spoke the language, he was fluent, and South America has always been an important market for us. So to have someone that speaks the language was important. So we brought PJ in and tried to do something with him. And some of the some of the drawings and some of the concepts that were floated about for PJ was absolute hilarity because, Hey, he's from Portugal. We'll make him Aldo Montoya soccer star. And they're showing all these different, uh, 
mock-ups of what he would wear and we'll have soccer balls and he'll kick soccer balls out into the audience and all this other shit. So as they're going through and they're making this big pitch, Vince goes, ah, oh, goddamn, I didn't even know that he played soccer. So he's, is he good? Oh, we don't know. Oh, wait a minute. You talked to him, you met with him. So I'm assuming that this soccer gimmick is something that he's comfortable with and that he's, he's played soccer. He likes soccer. Crickets. Wow. They didn't even fuck it because he was Portuguese and soccer's national sport. They thought, Oh, well, fuck, he's got to like soccer. He'll, he'll be a soccer player. And again, it goes back to Vince's philosophy. If you meet with the talent, you try to, take something from within them and bring it out. Um, and that wasn't it. You know, PJ didn't play soccer, didn't know anything about soccer and it was a shitty concept. So we came up with Aldo Montoya, the Portuguese man of war. Was that out of the box of gimmicks? Yes. Yes. It was in my office at the time and they just pulled it on out and said, okay, Hey, well, you know what? He'll be a jellyfish. But that was a, but that was a, seriously, it was a, that was one of the monikers, you know, man of war, uh, Aldo Montoya, Portuguese man of war. Like it's a fucking jellyfish, but it's a dangerous jellyfish. <laughs> oh, and, but we're going to make it, no, we're going to make it good. We're going to put a jock strap on his head kind of hide his face and shit a little bit because you know how the Portuguese are. My God, this gets worse by the fucking minute. Uh, of course we know that Paul's going to start using him and I guess he's on talent loan originally. And eventually we know that he's there full time, but, uh, he's debuts for ECW's PJ Walker. And then maybe a month later he becomes just incredible. Uh, what do you think of that name? Just incredible. Oh, uh, thought it was a good name. So, you know, it was a guy out in California, just insane. And so I think they took that and did just incredible. I, I liked it. It's, it's funny though, that on the surface, it seems like a silly name, but the character got over. It's all about presentation. I guess if you, uh, name a guy after a jellyfish and put a jock strap on his head, it won't work. But if you give him a goofy name and a kendo stick and jorts it might work. So. Who knows? Yeah. I, and it works so well. They're still in business. I, I was low key shitting on that idea. And then you're, <laughs> I, uh, well, I just, I'm just saying that you're just in a mood to argue. And I, I just needed to know that, but now I'm ready. No, okay. I'm not. I, I am never in a mood to argue. Well, that's not true. Sometimes, that's... sometimes you, you argue stuff and you say, you say some absurd shit and you're smiling ear to ear when you say it, because you know, <laughs> This is going to get them stirred up. That's not true. That's you because you sit there in front of a mirror and you smile because you're going to poke the fucking bear. That's true. That's true. Okay. I'll, I'll admit to it. I'll admit to it. And I'll tell you what, it probably feels like some of our uh, listeners have been poked by the bear because they're getting jacked around by the credit card companies. And here's a fact refinancing your credit card balances can lower your interest rate and save you money and you don't have to be some sort of financial expert to do this right now you can get a credit card consolidation loan from our friends over at lightstream 
with a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. That's way lower than the average credit card interest rate, which is more than 19% APR. And that means you could save thousands of dollars in interest. You can get a loan from 5,000 up to a hundred thousand dollars with absolutely no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. And how about this? You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. The application online is so easy. You can even apply right there from your phone. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience and they've made it happen. And how about this for our listeners and exclusively for our listeners, you can get an additional discount. Now, the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. Now, of course, this is subject to credit approval, but the rate is going to include a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice, but visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. That's L I G H T S T R E A M dot com slash wrestle. And uh, you'll be surprised at how easy this is. I've told the story many, many times here on the show. I had a great experience with Lightstream. At this point, it's probably been five years, but a phenomenal experience. Uh, I used them to buy a car. I was able to negotiate and shop like a cash buyer because they approved me just like that. It's the best interest rate I ever had on a car loan. They overnighted me the check. I presented it at the dealer and they were like, okay, I got the best deal I ever had on the car. The lowest interest rate I ever had on a car. They made it fast. They made it easy. Uh, can't recommend them enough. Check it out. Lightstream.com slash wrestle. Speaking of good deals, the rumor and innuendo is that part of the deal when Shawn Michaels comes back after his hiatus, after the whole hair pulling incident and unsafe working environment is that Sean had agreed to be drug tested regularly. And part of the reason that Brett and, and Michaels are cordial to each other lately, according to Dave Meltzer is related to Michael's passing all of his drug tests. McMahon didn't want Michael's back and was willing to cut his losses unless Michael's agreed to be tested and agreed to face severe penalties. If he failed any drug tests, this was news to me. I was a subscriber to the newsletter in this era, but I guess this flew under my radar. I didn't realize that a condition of him coming back to work was not just him agreeing to, but Vince saying, we're not going to put up with this up and down crazy behavior. We need to make sure you're clean and sober. What do you remember about this uh, little wrinkle in the return? It was in everyone's contract. Everybody was drug tested regularly at this time. It wasn't like he was singled out or special. So again, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of like newsflash. Oh my God. They made a special deal just for John Cena, where they're going to pay him every two weeks. Okay. Everybody gets paid every two weeks. That's much ado about absolutely nothing. All righty. Well, I, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was singled out or special or anything else. It's that, that was a, a part of the contracts and that's what it was. So things were going well after his return. And then the September 15th all happened. And we've talked oh, we've talked about this a little bit here and there over the years, but we've never really dug into this interview. Here's a Wade Keller report. Shawn Michaels had built up a track record of being cooperative for a few weeks and WWF management had their fingers crossed, but given his personality, even his friends didn't expect it to last and it didn't. 
Tuesday in Muncie at the tapings for the September 15th Raw is War, Michaels took advantage of the pre-tape format of Raw to give the WWF some headaches to deal with in post-production. His actions didn't top the headaches caused by his sudden need to rehab his knee just weeks before main eventing WrestleMania, but they came close. Michaels came to the ring only wearing compression biker shorts rather than his usual elaborate outfit. Michaels had stuffed his shorts and in post-production, the WWF intentionally edited in angles of only his upper torso as often as possible. Michaels at one point awkwardly jutted his crotch forward while listening to Ross's questions in order to put an exclamation point on his exaggerated protrusion. During the interview, Michaels went into swearing rants, which the WWF had to completely edit out. And those two quote unquote stunts by Michaels had the WWF management upset and his next stunt got the undertaker upset. Undertaker had the day off, but the WWF made it seem as if he was present by having him quote unquote respond to Michaels with a pre-recorded message on the Titan Tron. Michaels knowing undertaker wasn't actually in the building responded by calling undertaker down to the ring. He said, if undertaker was as brave as he appeared, he should come to the ring and face him right then and there. And of course the crowd popped thinking that of course the undertaker is going to accept the challenge. Instead, undertaker could do nothing about it because he's at home unaware that any of this is even happening. The crowd left the arena with the impression. The undertaker avoided Michael's challenge. And when undertaker heard what happened, he was said to be very upset. I think most of our listeners remember this interview because uh, he's jumping up and down with these gray shorts on sort of doing crotch chops and trying to put this banana or tube of socks or whatever in JR's face, but the undertaker promo piece. Now you're not just pissing off the office. Now you're pissing off the boys Boy, the hits just keep coming with Shawn Michaels in this era. What do you remember about this raw? Was Vince even there? Vince was not there and I was, uh, at gorilla. So I'm at Gorilla and I'm the last, you know, bastion of checking everybody before they go out. However, I did not check people's crotches. And Sean was up there, but it's dark. Uh, um, and again, I'm not going to look at anybody's crotch. Uh, Sean came through. We, we talked about our stuff. And right before he went out is when he put the the tube socks apparently on a, on a dare or a, you won't do it from some of the guys in the locker room. So Sean went out, you know, he went out doing his thing and, and crotch chopping his, uh, bulge in his lower extremities down in his crotchal area, Conrad and got to the ring and, and continued to point it out to Jr., who was visibly upset in the ring. And you could tell, and, I'm back at gorilla and I'm livid. Uh, I'm pissed off because we're there running the show. We're kind of in charge at the time. And it was, it was a slap in the face. I mean, it was. And when he came back, he didn't, he didn't stop. He just went right to the back and left. So didn't do what he had been asked to do. And of course, you know, Vince hears about it that night and, Basically, you know, kind of half-ass chewed me and Jr. out for for letting it happen type situation. So we got the brunt of it. But then Vince, once he saw it, was pissed off at Sean and find Sean at that time 
the the largest fine um, in company history. So Sean, you know, got in trouble and just kind of, okay, fine. You know what? I'll take it. I don't care. And then you fast forward about five or six weeks, maybe. And we're in Vince's office. And that's where Vince tells us, God damn, you know what Sean was doing that? That day was, it was attitude. It was attitude. We need more attitude. And the Attitude Era was born. So when, when people talked about w- when did the Attitude Era start? September played- 15th, 1997. Uh, yeah, Sean's crotch, man. <laughs> that was the Attitude Era. That was the dawning of Attitude in WWE. All right, let's run a timeout right now. And I got to tell you, this is one I'm excited about. I can't believe I'm saying this. All Elite Wrestling is here. Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. Get ready for the revolution with All Elite Wrestling. Of course, we're talking about Dynamite on TNT. It's the most exciting professional wrestling in the last decade. Made for wrestling fans by the wrestlers themselves. And AEW flies higher, hits harder. And with their all-inclusive roster of superstars, they're breaking all the boundaries. From Chris Jericho to Cody and Brandy Rhodes, of course, the Young Bucks, Nyla Rose, and more. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises this Wednesday, October 2nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. I can't believe this is happening. Of course, if you're listening to this show, you know the talk of the wrestling business has been All Elite Wrestling. And man, it all comes to a head this Wednesday, October 2nd, on TNT. Set your alarm. 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. You know, I can't let you say it was the largest fine in history without asking. Five figures, six figures? Five. Mm. Pretty memorable yeah, it was, moment here. It was here. a little snug. It was a little snug, man. What, what do you remember about the uh, the Undertaker and his response to this? Because... It's pretty rare that he's getting time off. I mean, he's getting time off. People are fucking with his character. Probably not something that's going to sit real well with him. No, Taker was pissed. Taker was livid. Um, and it was, it was a respect thing. It was, you don't, there's a professionalism and respect. And Sean did it because he knew it was taped. He knew that we could take it out. However, that costs money and that costs time and that costs effort unnecessarily. Well, also too, uh, it, you know, the fans in the crowd. Oh yeah. It looks like you pulled the undertaker's punk card. Right. Exactly. And, and people buzzing about it and, and the of course the locker room's going to stir that up. I'm sure takers friends had called him before Sean even got out of the ring. So uh, you, you add all of it up and it was extremely combustible. And it was one of those moments that. I wish hadn't happened, but it did. And it was absolutely the drizzling shits. Yeah. We should mention those guys were fresh off of their match at ground zero, which we recently covered in the archives, uh, just a couple of weeks prior to this. Let's talk about something else going on behind the scenes with another talent. Yokozuna, uh, is going to be moving to Stanford, Connecticut and is expected to return since he's still under contract. Of course, this is the report from Meltzer. Uh, Yokozuna moving to Stanford. Well, why would that have made sense here in late 97 for him? I have absolutely no idea. I've never heard that in my life. And I know that at the time that we were looking to take Yokozuna and put Yokozuna in Duke university, the 
for weight loss and we were going to have Yoko move and stay at Duke university to help him with his nutrition and help him with his weight loss. Um, I've never heard Stanford, Connecticut ever. Yeah. It's weird. I don't, I don't think I never heard that either. I, I do know that I think his last appearance on TV was survivor series the prior year, uh, 96. And you guys were trying to, uh, get him to lose weight and, you know, he was doing some diet and exercise stuff at his home, trying to get it under control. And then you guys couldn't get him qualified to wrestle. I think he had lost like a hundred pounds, but he still couldn't get medically cleared by the uh, New York state athletic commission. So that's going to be the end of Yokozuna and, in the company, right? Yeah. And Vince was more worried about his health than anything. It just, he was willing to say, Hey, look, I'll pay for this. And you get there, but you have to commit and you have to do it. And then, and only then, after you complete the program and, and you get into some kind of shape, will we talk about bringing you back. But you have to show this commitment first that you're willing to do it. And Yoko's whole thing was, no, you know, I'll stay at home and I'll do it. But we had some success with Duke. Um, actually, with Leon White, uh, Vader went to Duke. And had, man, got himself in pretty good shape. Leon lost a lot of weight when he went to Duke. So Leon had been telling us, hey, you know, send Yoko there because it helped me. And maybe it'll help Yoko too. And it Mm. was a proven program. And I I wish he would have gone. I I, I don't know, but I think it might have at least extended his life somewhat. And... That is that is what we were trying to do at the time. We we were just trying to get get him in a position where he was healthy and put some more years on his life. Yeah, I uh, I look forward to us doing uh, more on Yoko some other time. Uh, something else that's written by Wade Keller in this era. Vince McMahon is doing more of the booking of the storylines now, at least now more than ever. This is something I know you're going to love. Bruce Pritchard is totally out of the power circle. And Pat Patterson is merely a part-time road agent with virtually no creative input. Jim Cornette and Vince Russo are scripting television while Ross is still number two in power, coordinating house shows and wrestler schedules. Uh, What is happening here in September of 97? Are you doing different roles? Uh, is, Is Pat Patterson doing something separate? Is this the beginning of the end of Jim Cornette and Vince Russo working together? Well, Pat had been, Pat had been gone for a while. Pat had only been on the road as an agent for television for quite some time at this point. And Jim Cornette and I had been doing creative at the time. This was right after JJ Dillon had left the company. So JJ had left. I had assumed a lot of JJ's, uh, responsibilities, much to my chagrin, and I did. I moved from from creative to administrative. And Vince Russo, who I'd brought in to work with Jim and I and Vince, uh, kind of moved into that spot from that point going forward. So I was doing a lot more of the developmental stuff. I was doing a lot more of the administrative bullshit, if you will. But uh, Jr. was booking the house shows, which he had been doing all along, and uh, not really mine was the only friggin' job that changed because I went into the vice president of talent relations and I 
took over a lot of JJ's responsibilities on contracts and shit and things like that. So in about this time, JJ, I guess had been gone for a little while, but Jim Ross was, um, Jim Ross should have been that guy from day one, first of all. But, um, Vince didn't want to do it at that time. And, and so, yeah, I was out of the creative deal, but, uh, I have no idea what power circle there is. And I was, I was still there still doing talent relationship relating to the talent. Well, I, uh, I think the power circles blitz you. Am I wrong? No, you're not because here's the deal. Conrad, sometimes you're just not as powerful as you think you are, and you might need a little bit of help. In your crotchal area. Am I right? Right down there in your crotchal area in your penis region. And if you're looking to get a bigger Peter and 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 and, and make it like a, a purple people eater and get five stars on your performance, maybe seven stars in the Tokyo Dome, you need Blue Chew because Blue Chew is how you get your dick on the gas. And if you listen to this podcast, you know, what we're talking about, I'm talking about PDs, man. Why would you not want to do that? You know, put her over, have her put you Penis over. development, have her put him over. He, he'll put you over whatever he's and she's pronouns, pal. Everybody loves a big old dick. And that's what you get with bluechew.com and a bluechew.com certified physician will work with you to find the right active ingredient and the right dosage. Now, what are we talking about when we say active ingredient? You know, the shit that's in Viagra and Cialis. Well, now they got that shit in chewable form. And that shit right there, that's called Blue Chew. And you need that shit. It's good for your dick. Pick you up some right now. BlueChew.com. Use our promo code WRESTLE. They're going to send you that shit. For how much, Bruce? Absolutely free. All you've got to do is pay the $5 shipping. Now, it's not $1. It's not $2. It's not $3. It's not $4. It's $5. But I'm telling you, it's $5 a holler because everybody's going to be hollering when you lay the smack down on that cooter, that sweet, sweet cooter with bluechew.com. Use our promo code WRESTLE. Get your dick on the gas. That's what all the boys are doing. Everybody knows. That oh, you, my God. Right? Am hey, I wrong? Every, everybody no, in the business no, knows my dude, blue chew. If you, if you can only see some of my text messages of people sending me notes, so hey, hey, the blue chew gimmick, what's your promo code? And I just click back, wrestle. And they click back. Thank you. And then about two weeks later, they click back. Double thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm not going to mention any of the lighting guys' names or anything like that. But there's crews around this world that are extremely thankful for one thing. And that one thing is Bluetooth. Use our promo code WRESTLE to get you some for free. And how about this? It's going to be so big. It's going to be so engorged. So ready to go. Rigid. That rigid, turgid, in fact. You're going to want to let them breathe. All right, check it out. Bluechew.com. Get your dick real, real hard. You'll be glad you did. Um, the UK pay-per-views. We haven't talked about those a ton. We've never really covered one in long form here on the show. I think we will at some point, And I think when we do, it might not be this one. It's one night only. It goes down on September 20th, just two nights prior to this Monday Night Raw, which is a really, really big deal. Uh, of course, we know the end of that show is going to be Shawn Michaels winning the European title. Can't wait to talk about that again in long form. We talked about it on the Bulldog show. I want to hit it again uh, some other time on this show in particular. But what I wanted to ask about was when you guys were doing this, uh, you know, like a Saturday night pay-per-view in the UK, and now you've got to get all the way back here for a Monday night raw. 
And it's not just any old Raw. It's Madison Square Garden. Not the best scheduling, huh? Why? I don't know. It feels like you want your guys that your absolute possible best for MSG, right? Well, I mean, it's Saturday to Monday, so it's it's not that bad. Um, you know, we have guys going from, from coast to coast. It's only it's less than four hours or whatever it may be, four or five hours on a flight. So it's, it's not really that bad. Um, you're not going to get that kind of jet lag. It's, it's like being on the tour. So I don't think that that really is a big consideration because it's really just another day on the tour. When you look at it and, and people say, good God, you guys are going from here to there. But when that's what you do every day, it kind of just becomes part of your life. Sort of like blue chew. So let's talk about the real, I mean, it might've been a little hard on them. It probably was a little hard on them. And, and, you know, but here's the thing, like back then Wi-Fi wasn't a thing. So you had that long flight and it's not like you could play on the internet. You had to have something to play with and well, it's God's first toy, right? Yeah. If, if, if only man, good God, September 22nd, 1997, not only historic for what's happening on camera, but a pretty big thing going down behind the scenes as well. Before Raw would go on the air, Vince would have a private meeting with Bret Hart about the 20 year contract that they signed at Bret's house on October 9th, 1996. Bret is called into Vince's office and Vince tells him he's going to have to breach Bret's contract. He says that he can't pay him his full salary because of the problems he's had trying to compete with Ted Turner. And he wants to honor his contract, but Ted has made that impossible. And Vince calls Brett, the Cal Ripken of the WWF and says that he fully intends to pay him what he's owed on the back end of his 20 year contract. And Brett wrote of this meeting with Vince. He said, Vince said something like, I have no problem. If you want to see if WCW will make you the same deal as before. I hear that Hogan is finishing up there soon and your timing couldn't be more perfect. And Vince then told Brett, if he left, he'd actually be doing Vince a favor because he was about to downsize to a Northeastern United States promotion. And allegedly he tells Brett that because of his 14 years of loyal service, he wanted to give Brett the opportunity to approach WCW before everyone else did, since he'd be letting a lot of wrestlers go. And Vince then told him, quote, you don't even have to drop the belt. If you don't want to, you hold all the cards. And Vince even said he would secretly help Brett negotiate the deal with WCW if Brett wanted him to. And Vince said he'd see if he could find a way to pay Brett, but ask Brett for now to keep this to himself. And Vince says if word gets out that he's in trouble, it would actually hurt Brett's chances of negotiating that deal with Bischoff. And Brett said he was so stunned by how many promises that Vince had broken in one conversation that he didn't even know how to reply. So there's a lot to unpack in this conversation and I want us to take several minutes to do so. But first of all, going into this meeting, since you've now been ostracized from the power circle, because you're, um, not a good person or good at your job. I'm horrible. Or, or, exactly. I'm glad we agree. Yeah. Uh, I, was there <laughs> years, yeah, I was just absolutely the shit. The shits. Yeah. Um, they'd never hire me back ever. Did you, did you know this meeting was going to happen ahead of time? Did, I guess what I'm trying to get into is sort of like when Vince has to, I don't think this has ever happened before where Vince had to go to a guy 
and sort of bend his knee and say, Hey man, I'm in a fucking bad spot and I can't honor my word here. So I want to do right by you. Let's figure something out. Vince has always been in the power position. So for him to sort of open himself up and be vulnerable and then admit, fuck man, I'm taking an L on this and I got to try to fix this with you. What can we do? It feels like that's so out of his comfort zone that he might've talked about it with his inner circle, maybe even practiced the speech. How can, and then brainstormed, how do we present it? What options are there? What can we offer him? How do we, how do we get out of this jam that we're in? Did any of that happen? We knew that he was going to approach Brett. We knew what his options were and you have to understand, you know, there's two sides to every story. So as you, you listen to even the things that, that Brett says, it's some of it's accurate. I, I don't think that, uh, in that conversation that Vince would have said, you don't need to drop the, the belt. If you, if you go to our competitor, I, I don't think that that was said, but I wasn't there. So I, I, I don't know. And I can't tell you that yes or no, that any of that was said. However, I do know the, uh, the gist of the conversation from, from our side and from the business side of things and looking at it, you know, if Vince could have honored that deal and if Vince could have had Brett never go to WCW, I think he would have. And he did mean it when I can take care of you on the other side. However, right now was in a jam and needed some help, needed some relief. At the same time, you had Brett who, whenever he had the chance, would let people know that he had turned down $3 million at WCW and that, um, what a lucrative deal that he turned down to be here. And, and I could go over there anytime I wanted to. So hearing that after a while, I think Vince felt, well, maybe he would be happier over there. And if, if he can't do this, then perhaps making the money will make him happier. So he wanted to give him that opportunity and, and say, look, if that's what you want to do, um, I do need some relief. If you're not cool with that, you want to go see what's on the other side, go see what's on the other side and I'll work with you to make that happen. If that's what you want to do. So, um, it was, a, it was a tough time. I think that was a difficult conversation for Vince. It was made even more difficult for Vince because Vince had been there. We'd been at the garden all day, obviously in, in production and Brett didn't get there till later much later in the day while Vince was getting made up to go out and do commentary. So, uh, not having that time to sit down with Brett and, and be able to possibly go back and forth. It was a, a quick meeting prior to going on the air live where Vince had to get everything out. And I'm sure that it came across like a very one-sided conversation, Brett, this is where I'm at. So we need to do, here's what I'm willing to do. And if I can help you in the other way and you can go there, I'll do that. Um, right now I got to go out and do raw. So there, you know, it's, it's great to, to publish a book and, and put your side of the story. And that's what books are for, man. To, to get your story out there, but it doesn't it neglects the other side. And there, there's a whole nother, whole nother part to that story.
let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things he said here where he says, you're going to be doing me a favor because I'm about to downside to a Northeastern U S promotion. You know, lots of times when businesses are struggling, uh, even when they're not, when businesses plateau, sometimes they make a plan, a, a plan B, a plan C, and not just for growth, but you know, the sort of CYE. Hey, if, if, if things get tight and we need to make some cuts, what does that look like? Who gets cut? What do we cut? What do we limit? What do we eliminate? Where can we pick up lost dollars? But also too the pain, you know, um, everybody wants to cut. Nobody wants to bleed. You've got to cut some people and that sucks. Did you guys have like a, uh, a strategy or a discussion or a plan B or a a, uh, a plan for a, should you need to downsize what that would look like? Do you remember what those plans may have looked like? Absolutely. And that, that's where the whole Northeastern territory came in because, you know, we looked at the old model. We looked at the model that his father had for many years and was profitable. If you had all of your talent that lived in the Northeast that was able to drive everywhere, it eliminates your travel costs, which are astronomical. And now you, you have, you're going to have less talent. You're going to have probably in, in some cases that talent will work more, but smaller venues. Um, it was a complete what if, and looking at a strategy of, do we, do we say to everybody, Hey, you, you need to move to the Northeast. This is, this is where we're going to run. If you don't want to, you want to fly yourself in and, and do that. That's fine too. But, um, here's the area that we're going to run, find a centrally located place that you're happy. And we're going to go back to kind of a territorial system. And that's one of the discussions that we had. I don't, obviously it didn't go much further than a discussion. We, we looked at P and L's and we looked at what would work and what wouldn't work. So there was definitely talk about it. And there was definitely talk about downsizing in the office, downsizing on the talent roster and looking at ways to streamline the entire operation. The other thing that's mentioned in here, which I find so fascinating. I hear that Hogan is finishing up there soon. Your timing couldn't be more perfect. And you've revealed this years ago here on something to wrestle that at some point in late 97, Hogan had reached out and talked about, Hey, what if I was to come back? And I believe if I have my timing correct here, scheduled almost like a, a very public dinner with Vince McMahon with the hopes that it would get out that Hogan had dinner with Vince and maybe he could go back and use that as leverage to get WCW up. And perhaps Vince knew that that was what the plan was. And he went along with it, but there was also some, Hey, what if he comes back? Was there any consideration? What if we can get out of this Brett deal and he winds up going to WCW and we make some of these other cuts and we change our in your house format and increase some revenues and we up our ticket price, all the things you're going to do anyway, that ultimately allow you to pay Mike Tyson. But what if we applied some of the savings from Brett? and some of the new found revenue with these other changes. And we get the guy who sort of got us here, Hulk Hogan back on the squad. 
we had talked about it. And we talked about it extensively. We, we looked at what that would cost and what, you know, what all that would entail. I don't, I don't think that, that Hulk was enamored with coming back to the Northeast and living in the Northeast permanently either. But the reality of the situation by this point in the game was that we need to make do with what we have. We need to tighten up what we have. And it's either going to, you know, be make or break. So yeah, Hogan was, but, but it was, that wasn't a secret. It wasn't a secret on our end and it wasn't really a, you know, it was the, the worst kept secret in the business, I guess (laughs) you could say, because Hulk let it be known that, Hey, I'm coming up. My time's coming up. It made Hulk more valuable by doing that. And it was smart business move on his part because it, it truly was his contract coming up. So WCW now, if everybody else knows, well, shit, if there's interest there, then we're going to have to up our price. So yeah, um, that was all real. So it was an opportunity for Brett to, Maybe if WCW was looking at, well, if Hulk leaves, we, we could have Brett and that open a door for Brett that normally wouldn't have been as wide open. Two things. One, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but as hot as this, um, uh, anti-American angle is for the WWF, everyone would have to admit that Hogan as a heel was drawing more money and bigger ratings on the other channel. Did Vince at that point feel like uh, Hogan was still a notch above Brett as far as a draw and so uh, at someone on the roster, not in ring. I'm not being silly with that. I just mean as an attraction, as an attraction, I think that Hulk without a doubt, um, has always been viewed in that, in that way. No, No question about it. So, but at the same time, the, the comparison and could we, could we replicate that with the WWE audience? You got to remember, and, and it was two different audiences in a, in a lot of respects, a, a portion of it, but the WWE audience, when we eventually did bring Hulk in as a heel, they didn't want Hulk as a heel. They wanted their red and yellow Hulk Hogan. It had been enough time by that point that they'd, those that had seen him had seen him as a heel in WCW, but those that wanted him in the WWE, they wanted their red and yellow. They wanted their hero. So Vince always looked at Hulk as that Babe Ruth and is that, uh, you know, that hero that will always be here and the guy that you could always believe in. So. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I know that that was our pitch. I mean, that was my pitch to bring Hulk in as a heel because he had never been one here before. And I think that, uh, I think it would have done well, but you couldn't, I mean, I, I also thought that when the NWO came in, that Hulk as a heel would have done better than he did. And the audience didn't want to see that Hulk. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they would have shit on it or not. I think they would have bought him as a heel at that time. And I think that he could have helped because he had been gone long enough by that point. 
Well, Bruce, let's go down the rabbit hole here for a minute. Let's say you had brought him over. You, you guys sort of freestyled ideas a little bit. What would WrestleMania 14 have looked like? Well, could have been Hogan in, in Austin. Man, can you imagine Stone Cold Steve Austin, the, the white meat baby face? Well, not white meat, but the white hot baby face against the uh, super, super hated Hulk Hogan. That would have been something else, man. Uh, yeah, it really would have been. I, I think that it, uh, I think it would have done some, some astounding business. Well, Brett would say later that day, Sean and Hunter, uh, told him that they wanted, uh, him to, uh, call them gay. And, uh, I think this is the, the promo where on the show, you're going to see some shenanigans. Let's talk about raw, uh, a three minute feature airs on the rich history of wrestling in Madison square garden, beginning with an outdoor overhead shot of the arena, followed by footage of some of the big stars throughout the company history, Hulk Hogan, of course, superstar, Billy Graham, Bruno San Martino, Andre, the giant and Bob Backlund, followed by some of the more recent stars and JR is going to play narrator and tell viewers to stay tuned for what will be the most defining moment for the world wrestling federation as Monday night raw is invading Madison square garden. And then of course, Vince McMahon introduces the show. And the camera pans the arena and what a shot. Uh, we should mention that, uh, Ahmed Johnson and Rocky Malvier are in the first match. This is a, a part of the, uh, intercontinental title tournament. Ahmed gets a win over the rock, believe it or not, in just under five minutes. And the rest of the nation of domination will come to the ring with Rocky, but Sergeant Slaughter orders them to the back. And then your favorite and Vince's captain Lou shows up at ringside, taking notes. Uh, what do you remember about, uh, the creative decision to have Ahmed go over Rocky? I don't know, man. I wasn't in the fucking creative circle at the time I was on the outs. I wasn't in the power circle. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have no idea. Conrad. I don't know. I was just, I was watching on the monitor and, and going, oh no. Seriously. Ahmed Johnson. What was the upside for him in September of 97? Well, shit, man, we were hoping that there was an upside in Ahmed Johnson because he had a great look. Some bitch had charisma out the ass. Um, unfortunately, the bell had to ring. <laughs> We've talked about that. His promos were a little difficult to understand at times. But, yeah, we, we thought that there was an upside in Ahmed. And big bastard, people, he was believable. The audience believed in him. But... When you look back, you know, through rose colored glasses, you kind of go, what the fuck were we thinking? Or they, or what, what were they thinking? I was out of the power circle. Supposedly, uh, February of 98 is the end of Ahmed Johnson. And it was over, uh, maybe a piece of creative. I'm sure we'll cover that at some point in the future, but why don't you think Ahmed lasted longer? Was I, I don't know another way to say this. Was Ahmed a bit of a head case at times? Ahmed was Ahmed's worst enemy. Yeah. And Ahmed would let people get inside of his head and stir him up. He, Ahmed was very easy to, to get stirred up. And those that knew that would push those buttons and he would believe the last person that he talked to a lot of times, a lot of talent there. And that's, what's frustrating sometimes when you, um, you see that much talent just kind of go to waste and, and get messed up in their own head. 
and start believing their own press and, and what everybody else tells them instead of what's in front of them. Let's keep it moving and let's talk about um, the next segment here on the show. Um, Steve Austin is going to interrupt from the crowd as Vince, JR, and Lawler are talking about what's going to happen on this Monday Night Raw. And they're debuting a new broadcasting desk here. And Austin's going to say something like, There's no way they can hold a Raw at MSG without him. And uh, somebody's going to get their ass stone cold stunnered. And then they show Floyd Patterson, head of the New York State Athletic Commission. And highlights from the one night only pay-per-view over the past weekend with still shots of Shawn Michaels beating the British bulldog are going to air here. And then Vince would interview undertaker in the middle of the ring. And he's going to reveal that the winner of the cage match at bad blood, which is the upcoming pay-per-view in your house is going to face Bret Hart at survivor series. And Vince said, not only would there be a roof on the cage, but the underside of the ring would be thoroughly searched to prevent anyone from popping up through the floor. And Shawn Michaels interrupts and, uh, Michael says something like, is it my imagination or is the WWF once again, trying to give the heartbreak kid the shaft. And this has been a bit of a collision course with these two dating back to SummerSlam. When did you guys, you know, so Sean is the referee at SummerSlam, the errant chair shot cost the undertaker, the title shot that sets up in your house, ground zero. Lots of craziness, sort of a screw job finish, um, a schmoz, if you will. And now we're going to eliminate all that with this hell in a cell concept. Tell me what you remember about how this idea for this match comes together when you first saw it and why undertaker Sean was the right match for it. Well, looking for, you know, you're, you're sitting there and trying to think of different things and different gimmicks, different, what, what's going to make this thing unique. We've done everything, man. We'd done a casket match. felt like we had done everything there was to do. So Vince was looking for something new. Um, we all came up with different deals and I, I, I don't know if it was Cornette or Russo that came up with the idea, boy, there's some fodder right now that probably get everybody talking, but I don't remember which one actually came up with it. But the idea was a cage match with the top on the cage. And then it became what, what would be better than that? You know, how, how do you make it cooler? The, the guys were like, if you put us in a cage and there's a top on it, it restricts what they can do. What if we had a cage that surrounded the entire uh, corral area that we call everything outside the ring where the pads are? Hence, man, this this structure, Hell in a Cell, was created. And the creative folks came up with uh, drawings, and they built it, and it, it was done. But it was all stemming from what can we do different? What can we do new? that has never been done before. You know, they'd had matches, cage matches with tops on them before, but never a structure like hell in a cell. So this was to be able to get one more match, <laughs> you know, get that one more match. Cause Sean and Taker, you can have that match every fucking night, never get tired of it. So this was another way to get that match in a different way. Also, it was a tremendous way to debut Kane. So you throw all of these things into the hat and well, shit, you got hell in a cell. So it was a collaborative effort, but it was out of the need to get one more match and let's do something different. 
Well, you're looking for something different for Sunny to do, and she's going to come out to her entrance music and introduce the next match. The Legion of Doom are going to take on Kama Mustafa and Farouk. Talk to me a little bit about why Sunny is doing ring introductions here. Are you going to change the channel when she's on doing a ring introduction? I ain't changing the channel when she's on TV ever. Well, that's the point. So there's Sunny, and we're trying to think of different things for her to do. We came up with from her selling merchandise and coming out and doing spots for mail order merchandise to ring announcing timekeeper, whatever the hell it is to get Sonny on television so that you're going to stay just a little bit longer. It would blew you a little bit harder. I was but, hoping you were, when you said a little longer, I was like, maybe I already did it, but it's a perfect callback. Well, you know, Hey, what the hell? So that, that was the idea behind everything we we're doing with Sonny. Here, here was a talent that you really couldn't. You could, but we didn't have anybody at that time that she was really going to fit with. So, um, it worked. Let's see more of Sonny. Uh, before the match begins, they're going to show uh, Legion of doom on Fox news, interrupting the weather forecast, which sort of seems out of place. And then JR is going to point out that Ken Shamrock is not in the arena due to injury. And then Ahmed Johnson's going to run to the ring and of course, immediately re-injure his knee. Uh, the nation are attacking Ahmed and half a dozen officials run to the ring and are trying to restore order as the bells going off and the nation leave on their own. And then Owen Hart comes out to new entrance music. Oh, we should mention that, uh, Brian Pillman drags Marlena to the ring and Vince announces, uh, that to celebrate the end of Marlena's 30 days with Brian Pillman. Goldust and Marlena are going to have a commitment ceremony, another marriage ceremony on October 6th. Unfortunately, of course, Brian passed away the day before and, um, that'd be the end of that. Unfortunately, hear all about that though. If you want more info on that feud, we covered it in great detail in both the Goldust episode and the Brian Pillman episode, which are available in the archives at somethingwrestle.com. Uh, before the match, Pillman is making more comments about what he's been doing with Marlena. He said he slipped in the bathtub while, uh, quote, repositioning himself with Marlena and broke his arm. And he announces that he has to, unfortunately, forfeit the match. Slaughter comes to the ring and demands to see x-rays and a doctor's report. Pillman stammering around and said he left him back at the hotel. And then Slaughter threw the mic at Pillman and told him to think fast. And of course, Pillman caught the mic with his bad arm. So Slaughter says Pillman has to wrestle or leave the WWF for good. And so we get our match. Owen Hart and Brian Pillman are part of this intercontinental title tournament. It's going to go to a DQ. Owen gets the win seven minutes and 12 seconds. You can imagine what's coming. Goldust is going to run in and attack Pillman. Bastard. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, slide out of the ring, grab Marlena runs to the back. Owen gets on the mic and then Austin runs through the crowd and attacks Owen from behind. And then four police officers run in and threaten to hit Austin with clubs and arrest him. And that's when Vince has to step in. He leaves the announce table, steps into the ring and he's screaming, no, no, no. And he turns to Austin and says, what's the matter with you? Control yourself. Don't you know, you're not physically able to compete. Your doctors say you're not ready. If you compete, you could end up paralyzed and the WBF is not going to stand by and let you do that to yourself. These people don't want you to wind up in a wheelchair. You simply have to work within the system. That's all you've got to do. And Austin says, 
you know, as well as I do, this is what I do for a living. And this is all I do. And nobody can tell me I'm not the best. Don't tell me to work within the system because you're not the one sitting on your ass at home. Like I am. But if you think that's what it will take, then I will try to work within the system. I appreciate the fact that you and the WWF care. And I also appreciate that. Well, you can kiss my ass. Austin kicks Vince in the stomach, gives him the stunner fans go bananas. The police immediately handcuff Austin and drag him out of the ring and up the ramp as the uh, other officials are attending to Vince on the mat. And Jr. acknowledges that Vince is the owner of the company in this moment. And Lawler says Austin should be fired. And Ross said, no, I don't normally agree with you, but I think that's what's going to happen. What a big moment in WWF history. And what a big moment uh, it is in the story of the Mr. McMahon character that we're about to become very, very familiar with. Uh, but what a big moment for Stone Cold Steve Austin to be put in such a great spot like this. Whose idea was this? When do you remember this being discussed? It's brilliant the way it was put together where he's attacking Owen from behind and the police are involved. It feels like this was planned perfectly except for the execution of the stunner. Maybe that one should have been walked through. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it should have, but you know, this was everything that is said in there from Austin's standpoint and, and Vince's standpoint, all that's a shoot because we didn't know what to do. We did not know where we were with Steve. Steve didn't know where Steve was with Steve and Steve was sick of staying at home. Steve knew that, and we had assurances from doctors that if he did his rehab, everything would be fine. And he had been cleared to a point, but there was still, there was still a little bit of concern as to, all right, he's cleared now, but what if, you know, he starts taking bumps? We wanted him to ease into it and not come back and start having 30 minute matches every night again. So we decided to shoot with the story. If, um, Steve comes back and Steve says he's fine and Steve releases the company. Okay, great. And this was all just talking through what if scenarios and what would happen in real life. So it, it became, God damn people shit. If he fucking stuns Vince, you're not supposed to touch Vince. So. Vince became the prey and Vince became the guy, you know, uh, it stunned Sarge. I think before that, or after this shortly thereafter, but, but Vince was, you know, had never been a part of anything before. Um, and as the announcer and commentator, it was out of character for everybody. So even then, as much as I wanted Vince to be a heel, he's a heel. Uh, you know, Vince was like, God damn it. You know, nobody knows that I'm the owner of the company. Well, then we tell them. And in New York where Vince was a mainstay for fucking a hundred years, it didn't matter. They, they knew, they knew his old man. They knew him. And there was a, there was a soft spot for Vince there, but God damn it, man. They loved their stone cold Steve Austin. So it was all based on a shoot scenario. What would happen? and what would really take place and what Steve wanted to do. Steve was like, fuck, I'll just come in and raise some fucking L kicks in people's asses. It was a way to keep him on television to, to get the momentum and continue to build without having to have him work 30 minute matches. 
So this was that, you know, continuing to build the, that babyface character, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and the unpredictability of all of it. Um, no one. I, well, I don't, I'm not going to say no one. Uh, I don't think that people thought it would happen as big and as crazy as it did. And, and by God, it did. Thank God. Was there any hesitation to revealing that Vince was the owner of the company? There wasn't hesitation. Vince just didn't think anybody cared. Right. You know, to Vince, it was like, God damn it. It's a WWF. It's, it's a corporation. It's, it's, it's a big company. No one cares who owns it. Who the fuck cares? I'm a commentator. That is, I play a part. Uh, doesn't matter who the owner is. So. You know, we'd always use the WWF president, Gorilla Monsoon, Jack Tunney, and, and different figureheads and never acknowledge Vince as the owner. However, in trade documents or trade uh, publications and shit, they would do it all the time. And his answer to that was, well, they're trade newspapers. So, yeah, they know. But in New York, man, the steroid trial every friggin' day he was on the front page of the paper is the owner of the company. If it was going to get over anywhere, it was going to get over in New York. But Vince just never saw it as a big deal. Back in 1991, I think it was, um, Vince was, you know, positioned on TV as just a commentator and he's at the commentary booth with Roddy Piper. Flair's going to come out, have a confrontation with Piper. Vince gets between them and Rick would hit Vince in the back with a chair. And that's really the only time we saw any physicality with him. And man, it showed with this stunner. Uh, I think Jericho once said this looks like a water bottle taking a stunner because Vince's body just pretty much stayed straight the whole time. Well, did you guys give him shit? This feels like something, whenever you get people together, you would air this footage just to fuck with Vince and have a little fun. Do you remember people uh, ribbing him about the worst stunner ever for a bit after this? Yeah, to this day, I think people still, you know, give him a hard. He gives himself a hard time, so <laughs> you know he knew it when it happened. He knew it when he did it, and um, it forever lives. But it's still a great man. It's a great video that shot of him laying there and Austin in his face and shit. The uh, him shaking uh, once he's on the ground is my favorite part of the entire cell. <laughs> I don't think that had ever happened before during a stunner. Where the fuck does that improv come from? Uh, who the hell knows, man? No, no hang on. Uh, I wasn't asking Bruce. Ah, uh, who the God damn it. What the fuck? <laughs> you're stunned. You God damn it. You shake when you're stunned. Um, I mean, I really do think he took it literally like, oh, it's a stone cold stunner, like stunning. Like you've been stunned, like electricity. Right. And so how would you respond if you were electrocuted, pal? God damn, you shake all over. I don't know. That's just the fuck is he doing? No one will ever be able to answer that. It's great stuff. The next hour is going to open with the brief acknowledgement of the death of uh, bulldog, Bob Brower. He, uh, passed away September 15th, 1997. And then Lawler is going to interview Rhonda Shear from USA up all night. Uh, at ringside, what's your favorite Rhonda Shear story? <laughs> My favorite Rhonda Shear story. So you expect me not to have one, didn't you? No, I expect My that you do because somebody in the back somewhere had a comment. I'm sure. 
No, my favorite Ron DeShear uh, story is WrestleMania 10 when we had her as a celebrity and apparently she had had an altercation with Burt Reynolds mm. prior to WrestleMania 10. And Burt, well, his manager came to us and said, whatever you do, don't have Rhonda Shear anywhere near Burt. I don't want Burt to be in the hallway when Rhonda's there. I don't want them to cross paths. The two shall not meet. Burt wants nothing to do with her. Keep her away from us. No exaggeration. 15 minutes later, Rhonda Shearer is in Bert's dressing room and they're hugging and, and happy to see one another. And I went, I changed the entire show to putting Bert with uh, Jenny Garth because originally I had him with Rhonda Shearer. And I put him with Jenny Garth because I was told this. So I'm redoing all this shit. I rewrite everything, I redo everything, I send it out to everybody. And I go in to talk to Bert, and he's there hugging Rhonda Shear. I'm like, what the fuck? Right. You told me that now they're what the hell? So <laughs> as I as I'm going over the uh, show with Bert Reynolds, and I, I said, okay, and then you'll uh, escort uh, Jenny out to the ring. He goes, what? I got to fucking take the twelve year old out to the ring? He goes, why the hell can't I go out with Rhonda? At least she's something to look at. Yeah, that's my favorite Rhonda Shear story. And uh, this was the next time I had seen her since then. But oh. if you want to be up all night. Bluetooth.com. <laughs> the hits keep promo code wrestle. Oh, yeah. Just try that fucking promo code on anything. Literally folks, anything. Folks, we, we will sell dick pills here. We don't care. Oh yeah. I'm not too good for that. Cause here's the deal. You know what people on this show, people who listen to this show. I know they like a few things. They like, they like dick pills. Well, they like eating. They like wrestling. They like sports. They like getting their dick real hard. Uh, and they might even like sports criminal stories about fame and money and ego. And these things can make athletes seem superhuman. But what happens when those in professional sports reveal their darker side of their humanity? Every week, the Parcast Network's new podcast, Sports Criminals, explores some of the most significant crimes in the world. Some are chilling, like when former NFL receiver Ray Carruth hired a friend to murder his pregnant girlfriend. And some of these crimes are reckless, like when former NBA star Jason Williams shot his limo driver to death and then tried to cover it up. And some of these crimes are unimaginably tragic. Sports criminals, athletes you thought you knew, crimes you won't forget. Listen and subscribe to Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts, or visit parcast.com slash sports criminals to listen now. I don't want to spell parcast for you. It's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash sports criminals. And the rumor and innuendo is uh they got a lot of topics there. A little something for everybody. Now, let's keep it moving here and let's talk about how Mick Foley was trying to have something for everybody. There's a match here advertised as Dude Love, who we know debuted sort of at SummerSlam 97 when Mankind opened his shirt and revealed the drawn on heart on his chest when he was wrestling Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And now here, Dude Love versus Hunter is supposed to happen on Raw right here in Madison Square Garden. But instead, Dude appears on the Titan Tron and set a false count anywhere. 
isn't his style of match. He said, I know somebody whose bag it is. He's my man. He's a kooky kind of cat. Let's bring him out. And then mankind sits down next to dude love, giving the impression that they are in fact, two people they exchange a few words before revealing that the real king of false count anywhere match is actually cactus Jack and dude said cactus Jack is back. And then cactus appears on screen with dude mankind cactus then appears in the entryway and the fans in New York pop. And very soon we hear a very loud ECW chant and, uh, they're happy that this former very popular character from WCW and very briefly in ECW is here. They're going to brawl all over the place, all kinds of weapons finish comes around 10 minutes. When China hits cactus with a chair, she tries again, but this time cactus grabs the chair. Hunter kicks cactus from behind, shoving him into China who hits her head on the metal ring stairs. She appears to be knocked out. And then cactus and Hunter exchange moves and two counts on the steel rampway. And here's the big finish. The bout ends when cactus delivers a pile driver onto Hunter through a table and the uh, pinfall, uh, Hunter did uh, after the pinfall, Hunter didn't move and cactus is stumbling around trying to rise to his feet. Quite the debut for cactus Jack. It feels like something that Vince may have been reluctant to do, but it's very, very well done. This is the first time we see the three faces of Foley, which we know are going to be a big part of Mick's career moving forward. His mainstay WWF character had been mankind. Now he's got this sort of alter ego that you guys have given the backstory for over the summer. And now everybody's favorite from yesteryear cactus Jack. What do you remember about convincing Vince that now nah, we should let him do it because clearly somebody pitched it up front and Vince wasn't for it, but eventually he warmed up to the idea. You know, he did. And, and I go back to when we first did dude love and the, different personalities of Mick Foley, it became, you know, I don't think we really got to know Mick yet. You know what I'm saying? So you had mankind and you'd had dude love. So you got this multi-personality guy, but the one that we hadn't seen yet was Cactus Jack. I had made the comment at one point and I'm sure everybody will take credit for it. Um, and I'm not taking credit for it because I'm sure other people did do it. But I made the comment I would love to see Cactus, or I mean, uh, Mankind interview Dude Love and then introduce Cactus Jack and then have Mick Foley come in and talk to all three of them and kind of, you know, conduct the interview basically. So anyway, tell me Cactus Shack, and then Dude Love jumps in on the shit, and then Mick is like, hey, guys, calm down. So it's Mick managing these three personalities. And that's how it, it all kind of morphed. But it was, it was a half-ass what if. And I know that to Mick Foley, Cactus Jack was, you know, that character near and dear to him. And Mick wanted to do Cactus Jack. And to get to this point in everything – I think it was actually Mick's suggestion to get to the Cactus Jack character in New York and in Madison Square Garden where he had watched Jimmy Snuka dive off the cage and shit. So that was a huge moment to him, and it, it was Mick that ultimately really convinced Vince to do this. And I think Hunter liked the idea, and, and everybody liked the idea because it was another character. 
it was it was somebody else you could book. If mankind was there last time in your town, this time it'll be Dude Love or it'll be Cactus Jack, and it was a it was something we hadn't done yet. And for New York City, good God, man, it is Long Island boy makes good. That was that was a special moment. That was a really really cool moment because you have times when you watch guys that are special to you and Mick was special for him to go out and you know what that means to him when he walks on that stage in Madison square garden Mm. and to do it, to do it on his terms with his character. That's some pretty cool shit. Dude. It really is. Especially when you, you know, put it all together, you know, like you said, a guy who, hitchhiking there to see it as a kid and now he's there with something he created it's such a fucking cool story it's weird that in the last three years since we've been doing this show it's really made me sort of reevaluate you know sort of the way i appreciate wrestling and i think now i appreciate the guys who are more utility players like i think jerry lawler and i think bobby heenan and you know mick foley are, are now low key in like my top 10 all time. And I don't know that that would have been the case a few years ago, but you just see how, man, anywhere you put those guys, they excelled. It's a uh, special character, special performer. McFoley was yes. Yeah. He was able to pull off pretty much anything you put him in next up. Oh, I guess we should mention this fucking horrible table. Uh, this is the biggest piece of shit gimmick table in the history of gimmick tables. Was it gimmick? Is this a Richie Posner particle board special? No, it wasn't gimmick. That's why it was so shitty. Did you get this from gimmick tables R us? No, we got it at shitty tables R us. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it was fucking horrific. Like a, a good size Thanksgiving would have collapsed that motherfucker. No uh, shit. Much less fucking, um, <laughs> Hey, cactus Jack was a little heavier than too. Yeah. As, as Terry Funk called him satchel ass. There you go. Uh, Lawler and JR are going to plug the survivor. Your mother's a satchel ass. Oh, sorry. I hadn't hadn't pulled that one out in a while. It's better than what you normally say about my mom, Terry. Thank you for that. Your mother's a whore. We were doing so well. Uh, Lawler and JR plug the survivor. Don't let me forget to tell the Pancho Villa story at the end of the show. We'll just do it now. Okay. I just heard, I heard this story and, and this is, a, I, I saw it on Facebook of this guy doing it and I probably won't do it justice, but I hadn't laughed out loud this hard in a long time when I heard this story. All right. Explain what the fuck you're about to talk about here. Cause this, okay. we're talking about raw from September of 97 and you want to talk about a Mexican general. Yes. I, I don't know why. I mean, we'll get back to Rob. We'll finish up on Rob, but I just, I wanted to share this story because it was funny. I had to call Dave Silva immediately and made him listen to it. And he laughed and he thought it was, he thought it was good too. So I just wanted to share it with our listeners. I mean, I, you know, I, I go off on beaten paths sometimes and off on tangents. And this is one of those where this guy told a story about a professor professor like yeah i think he was in michigan or something like that who who had heard about pancho villa and he wanted to to learn about pancho villa but he didn't want to do it in books man he he figured that the only way to do it was to actually fly to mexico and find someone who knew pancho villa and talk to them firsthand to get the true story about pancho villa and 
he flies to Mexico and he goes out to this small village and he's told that there's an old man at the end of the street that knew Pancho Villa. And he went down and he knocked on the door and an old man answers the door. He says, excuse me, sir. Did you know Pancho Villa? And the old man went into this story. He says, did I know Pancho Villa? Let me tell you about the time I met Pancho Villa. I was riding in the desert on my burro, and the sun was really hot outside, and I came across this man on a black stallion, a huge sombrero, and I looked up at him, and he says, I am Pancho Villa. Get off your burro. And I looked, and he had un pistola. I did not have a pistola. So since he had pistola, I got off of my burro, as I was told. From there, Pancho Villa, he looked down at me, and he says, take off your pants. I said, I don't need to take off my pants, but Pancho Villa, he has un pistola. I don't have a pistola, so I take off my pants. Then Pancho Villa says to me, he says, take a chit. I say, I don't have to take a shit right now, but I, he's got a wound pistola. I don't have a pistola, so I take a shit. And then he says, eat the shit. Pancho Villa had a pistola, so I have to take, I have to eat the shit. Well, while I'm eating the shit, a snake came by and he spooked Pancho Villa's horse. And Pancho Villa went flying off of his horse and um pistola fell right in front of me. So I picked up pistola and I pointed Pancho Villa and I say, take off your pants. He did not want to take off his pants, but I had pistola. He did not have pistola. So he take off his pants. From there, I say, take a shit. Now, I do not know if the man had to take a shit at that time, but he took a shit. And then I said, eat the shit. Since I had pistola and Pancho Villa no longer had his pistola, he ate the shit. So you ask me, do I know Pancho Villa? Yeah, we had lunch one time. Oh, come on! The come on! What the fuck are you doing to us? <laughs> come on! That's good shit! <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> he ate the chin! I ate the chin! Yeah, we had lunch one time! Dude, I laughed so fucking hard. I, I fucking played it back. I just, I laughed so fucking hard. If you That's think, good. come on. If you think within 24 hours of this episode drawing, uh, dropping, I'm not going to have a fucking Pancho Villa shirt up. You're wrong. <laughs> ah, man. So I had a lunch with Pancho Villa. See? I, 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 um, I heard it was a true story, too. <laughs> Yeah, I read it in the Observer. Do I talk about uh, Raw now, or or is that? Or, oh fuck, Brett beat Goldust with a fucking shark shooter. <laughs> Who the fuck gives a shit, man? Okay, Brett's gonna face Sean or Undertaker, one of the two, triple threat for the world title. What the fuck? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, that, that's it. Before the match, Brett talked about facing Undertaker or Sean at Survivor Series, and he says after the rest what, is history. What man. Michaels did to Bulldog two nights earlier in the UK, their paths are going to cross eventually. Of course, Brett beats Goldust with the sharpshooter, won't break the hold. Michaels attacks Brett, 
Owen Hunter and Olympic Bulldog and Rude all come into the ring. Jim Neidhart comes out next. Undertaker follows. Choke slams both Michaels and Brett. Show goes off the air. There's an unadvertised dark match. Brett's going to take on Sean and Undertaker in a triple threat. Uh, Raw does a 2.33 rating. Uh, and uh, Nitro goes off the air at 10.16 Eastern time. And the uh, Raw audience shows almost no growth even after nitro is off the air and that means the 2.6 million homes that were watching nitro statistically none of them tuned in to usa so while raw gets a 2.33 and we're celebrating this great show nitro does a 3.69 and in the head-to-head segments nitro would win 3.58 to 2.33 and Nitro, of course, has a replay. It does a 1.6. So even though this is a great show, it gets smashed by Nitro. Are you a little defeated the next day after you know you put on a hell of a show like this? You know, the Stone Cold Stunner, Cactus Jack. It's a big show. Brett's in the main event. Do you feel like, fuck, man, what's it going to take the next day? Or, or are you just happy with the content and not really worried about what they're doing at this point? frustrated more than anything um i think that yeah it's frustration it it was a good show but we we had not made the decision really up until this point to what the hell were we going to do with austin and there there were so many unknowns and then there's the unknown of what's going to happen with brett so there's a frustration i can't build with brett I can't necessarily build with Austin. Sean is out in fucking no man's land and Taker wants time off. So at this point, had anybody said, what about Mike Tyson? No, no. Tyson wasn't even in the conversation yet. When you're, when you're talking about Brett at this point after the show. So, you know, Fans are emptying out of the building. Production's packing everything up. They're breaking down the ring. You're in a limo ride back to Connecticut or whatever the fuck with Vince. Do you say how to go with Brett? I think I did. The, I, I don't believe I even had that conversation with him till the next day. And we didn't know. You know, he, he got to tell Brett what he needed to tell him. Then he had to go out and do the show and... He, he didn't really get much further than that. So he had given Brett permission to go and find out what's on the other side. And now the, the ball was in Brett's court. And we just had to wait. Two things. So that, that's, that's where the frustration comes from. Two things just, I want to ask here about don't the, know. the Brett thing. Did Vince, how long prior to this meeting, because it, we should mention, as we said earlier, just as a reminder, Two days prior to this, you guys are doing a pay-per-view in the UK. How far in advance did, did Vince know he needed to have this conversation and he needed to just sort of pull the bandaid off? Um, I want to say he probably came to that decision over the weekend. I, you know, it had been weighing on him. It had been weighing on all of us for quite some time, but me, on things like, you know, big things like that, a lot of times Vince will just think it through and, and go do it. 
let me ask when you said it had been weighing on us for a long time, was it a situation where like when you guys are just discussing sort of the financials of the company and just the overall health and maybe, you know, Hey, where can we cut some costs? Where can we increase some revenues? Does it always just sort of come back to, and then we got this goddamn Brett contract, but you know, it is what it is. No, we really didn't. It, it came back to, um, at least, at least for us on our part, it came back to, um, where do you, where else do you cut? What else do you do? Which is, you know, it's funny because the complete opposite, <laughs> it was, it was the complete opposite for me in, in, uh, in TNA where the first thing I wanted to do was cut all the big contracts. Right. Um, so, and I got that pretty much from Vince's philosophy and, and how he handled the Brett thing, because it was, look, we can cut a lot of little things. That's not going to help us. And we did not, at least I didn't, I, I don't know if so, anybody else did, but, uh, we didn't, we didn't look there. We, we did do what ifs with what if we got Hogan? What if we got this? What if we did that? And it all came back down to, we need to have cash flow. We need to, we need to be moving the needle. And that was Vince's decision. And, and that was something that he did. And we're like, okay, great. We're good to go. Did you feel like internally, since you sort of knew the strategy or not the strategy, but there was a, a possibility internally were some people looking at this almost like this conversation with Brett, this could be like phase one and it's not really, but almost like a trade of Brett to WCW Hogan back to us. No, not at that time. No, I, I think it was let's, let's cut and let's make do with what we have. We, we were basically told make do with what you have. It's just fascinating to me when, when you said, when the rating comes in the next day, it's not necessarily that we're just going to focus on us. It's frustration because I think my brain would go to what do they have that we don't have? And if they're hot angle, if they're hot act, this Hulk Hogan and his contracts coming up and we might could afford him if we made some of these cuts and then let Brett go, it sure does feel like a trade and, and what a monumental day this is in wrestling history, because we've talked about everything that's happening here on the WWF side. But I don't even know that you know this. Do you know what was significant that happened on Nitro that night? No. The debut of Bill Goldberg. This first uh -huh. match. What a fuck. When you look back, man, September 22nd, dude, such a big night. And uh, as a reminder, they're fresh off of, um, the NWO and, and well, Kurt specifically turning on the horseman and the NWO giving the big beat down at the war games. So Hogan comes out on this nitro wearing Flair's robe, just a pretty significant night in wrestling history. And obviously they had the better story to tell 3.69 rating to Ross 2.33. But all these years later, people aren't talking about what was on that channel. They're talking about here with the stoner with Austin. So, uh, the story that stood the, that stood the test of time, easy for me to say is Monday night raw. And we appreciate you guys spending time with us on this Saturday morning. We apologize. It's a little late. Obviously it couldn't be prevented this week. We planned on, uh, throwing out some sort of bullshit for you yesterday at noon, but we just decided, you know what? Let's just, 
be honest with them and tell them Bruce ain't got no fucking power y'all. So we're going to do our best to get it out, but, uh, we somehow made it happen and we appreciate you joining us here with us today. We've got uh, new content coming your way this Friday and every Friday. Don't forget to check out BrucePritchard.com. Check out your new t-shirts. I have a sneaking suspicion. There's going to be a Mexican general shirt up there, or maybe a shirt about eating shit or something like that at BrucePritchard.com. And, uh, don't forget to support our sponsors, man. We've uh, got some great sponsors this week. Uh, of course, uh, the, the big one, bluechew.com. Why could you not support that? Or how could you not support that? Uh, but Lightstream as well. And then, man, how about criminals and sports? And that's a hell of a podcast idea, isn't it, Bruce? Absolutely. wonder where they got that from. Hmm. Sounds like a good idea. I like it. And I hope you guys dug this very special, late, but still pretty fun episode of Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Do I know Pasha Villa? Shit, I had lost with him one time with Shaka Khan. You fucking love that joke, don't you? Is that your new favorite <laughs> joke? That's my new go-to. I love it. I'm going to have to have you uh, call back and tell it to Megan later. Sure, no, I will, man. <laughs> See you, dude. Later. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.